Hi, this is Samantha, and you're listening to the Layman's Doctor podcast, where we're bringing medicine home. Today, I have with me Dr. Tariq Parker, and we're recording this over online because one, yes, we're practicing social distancing, but he's not actually in the country either. So if you're having any problems with sound, please just forgive me and forgive us. We're going to have a really exciting conversation today all about Dr. Parker and hopefully learn some different pathways that we can take with medicine. So, of course, I'm going to leave the introduction all up to you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I think this is a really cool um, idea and initiative. So really, really um, honored to, to be a part of it. So uh, I'm Tarek Parko. I born and raised Kingston, Jamaica. Went to UE, graduated MedSci in 2014, class of 2014. Uh, after that, I did my internship at the Spanish Town Hospital, uh, where I learned where the yes, no Spanish Town comes from. I understand it's the hospital. So that year, during that year of internship, I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship, and thankfully I, I won, and, and that sent me off to the UK. So in 2016, I left Jamaica and started my master's in neuroscience at the University of Oxford. Uh, since that time, finished the master's and started my PhD. I'm currently in my final year of my PhD um, in the Oxford Functional Neurosurgery Group. So my thesis and the, the research that I do is now investigating the neurophysiologic uh, representation of pain and how we can use surgical techniques to treat pain. So yeah, so that's what I've been doing for the past four or five years. Um, and now I'm back in the U.S., transitioning back into clinical practice, applying for, for residency programs. Okay, that is, uh, for five years, that's a lot, a <laughs> lot of stuff. Yeah, so you applied for the Rhodes Scholarship in your internship year. Correct. What made you decide to do that? You know, it was mostly encouragement from uh, mentors, uh, professors in the in the faculty. I think a lot of them had had a lot of confidence in my in my application, and I guess at the same time it was something that I'd heard about, and I knew that uh, you know people at that kind of stage in their career would apply. So I thought, you know, give it a shot. Um, and I'm really, really grateful that I did. It was yeah, one of the most impactful times of my life, definitely. And you said that allowed you to go to the UK and study up to, what, two degrees, I believe? You got two degrees from them? More or less. So, yeah, so I did my, my master's um, in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I was a one-year master's. Um, I'm finishing up the PhD now, but one of the things that I did, and I guess that's kind of, to the, the, the heart of the conversation here is I also did my MRCS, which is also considered a postgraduate diploma. Okay. So, so that's one of the things that I guess, um, or one of the things I learned uh, while being in the UK was kind of those alternative career paths and how one can pursue uh, registration in the UK via, you know, non-traditional channels, which I think not, not many people are aware of. And, and I think people should definitely explore if they're considering the UK as, as another pathway in their, in their medical trajectory. Yeah, because um, we were talking about PLAB versus really bad with acronyms. Mm. Can you just repeat the acronym for me, please? Yeah, so I, I did MRCS. I mean, mm -hmm. PLAB is, is definitely the most commonly used pathway. Mm -hmm. But I did the MRCS, which is the membership of the Royal College of Surgery. 
Um, and they have MRC everything, right? They have like MRCP for um, membership of the Royal College of Physicians. They have MRCOG for obstetrics and gynecology. So they have lots of them for specific specialties. And the reason that most people do PLAB is because one, it's probably the, the, the easier exam to do if you want to, to get into the UK and start practicing quickly. And two, if you're not sure about what specialty, where, where you want to specialize, or if you want to specialize at all for that matter, PLAB is definitely the right exam for you. And so I understand why it's the most commonly done exam, but for me, I knew I wanted to do surgery. And I wanted to leave that door open to, to potentially do my, my surgical training in the UK. So instead of doing PLAB as a, a method to um, getting GMC registered, you can do any of those Royal College exams. And those Royal College exams in, and the PLAB are very expensive. Like, make no mistake, we're talking uh, at least a thousand pounds per exam. I mean, that's not including costs of flights, you know, accommodation, food, all of those other things. So they're very, very expensive exams. And for me, I didn't want to duplicate the cost of getting registered to the GMC because if I did the PLAB, got registered, started training, and then had to do MRCS, I would have paid the money twice. So that was my shortcut, essentially. So I, I would advise anybody that wants to take that shortcut, don't do PLAB. If you know exactly what specialty you want to do, take one of the Royal College exams, because that is what they call a postgraduate qualification pathway to getting GMC registered straight out as, a, as an international medical graduate. So when you, did a, when you do MRCS, versus PAP. Yeah. Maybe we should kind of go back and talk about the UK system, which from my understanding is very similar to our system in that, I don't know how to explain it. It's like you you finish, but they still have like an internship period. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. So so it's it's interesting in that there are um, lots of similarities. And I think that's why a lot of clinicians from the Caribbean find it easier to acclimate to the UK compared to the US, right? Because, you know, our system is pretty much derived from theirs. So yeah, right after uh, most people graduate from UK, from UK medical schools, they go into what they call foundation years. Mm -hmm. And foundation year one is kind of akin to our internship year. So, you know, you're this grunt worker, you do all the stuff that nobody wants to do. And you essentially baptism by fire for that first year. And then the second foundation year functions like Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And that second year functions like SHO. So that's foundation year two. Usually it's still in lots of different specialties. Um, I think the difference with our SHO is that we have it split into two distinct things. But foundation year... We have year, it into three. Actually, it three depends. Now? You can split... You have to do health center. Right, of course. Some persons can do six months health center, six months something else, or even mm. four months health center, eight months. Like, like, like The way how you can split it up is yeah. varied, but... Officially, yeah. it's four months in three specialties. Okay. Health center being one of them. Do you prefer it that way? Do you think it's nicer to have lots of varied experiences? What uh, I think it depends on the person. So mm. what I think is nice um, is that, or what I think should be more accessible, mm-hmm. is for you to be able to change up the time. Okay. So for persons who have done longer periods in something else, mm-hmm. it might have been based on the need or might have been based on somebody backing you up or being able to say, yes, I want them to stay for a little bit longer. Sure. Just varying things. And a lot of times it's based on the need that 
the different institution has? No, sure. I, the reason I ask is because uh, I guess it was my internship here that they were making this transition into a mandatory health center rotation, and we almost riot in the streets and burn tire. I think people were very upset that they had to go to the health center, and it's until well, it was instituted that people really saw the benefits of like, yeah, I can go health center and have a reasonable work life balance when I'm like going to work from you know nine to three instead of six o'clock to six o'clock. You know, like it felt a lot easier for a lot of people. So I, that's why I was curious whether the adjustments oh. were preferable. But yeah, well, I think the I think the not to segue, but I think the main thing with persons maybe not going to health centers because that's your quote-unquote broke rotation right um because the pay is i guess right. i suppose but i don't know it's supposedly significantly less than what you would get when you have duties sure but right. um i think you get incentive as well right, right, so right, it's right. not it's it's not terrible sure. hopefully sure but it's livable yeah quote in quotes livable I also think that um, if you know what you want to do already, mm. that you should be able to... I think everybody should do the health center rotation. That's just me. Okay. The other the other eight months of the year, mm-hmm. if you know that you want to do gen surge, for example, you should be able to stay in gen surge for at least six months or right. eight months because it definitely strengthens your right. application. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the same thing applies in the UK to some extent, right? The foundation years will kind of build your profile for subsequent applications and after the foundation years you can sort of start to enter into certain specialties depends on the specialty though so for surgical specialties they usually call them st1 to st8 Um, so surgical trainee one to surgical trainee eight some specialties will change the the first two letters so i will change the first letter to ct1 and c to ct3 so that's a core trainee one to core training two so those two years of core surgical training they think is you know essentially different from your surgical training or the specialist training so effectively what happens in that trajectory once you finish the foundation years during that first two years of surgical training or specialist training ct1 ct2 you're meant to do some royal college exam before you can progress to an st3 and so my idea was, listen, why waste time and do lab and spend a whole heap of money that really I didn't have? I was just going to go straight for MRCS. Okay. And so, I, and I, I've, again, there are quite a few people who I've met, you know, from the Caribbean who similarly did like straight to MRCS, but they're usually people who have already started their surgical training. So they're like residents. And so they're kind of like thinking to transition from their residency in Jamaica or their MO spot in Jamaica into uh it's effectively an mo spot in in the uk okay yeah so when someone does club mm-hmm. what does that it sounds like let me see if i'm right yeah when you do when you did mrcs it means that you can now say okay i want to apply for surgical programs right can kind of give you a foot in correct whereas if you did club would you have to again do over those two foundation years or would you be able to just work as a independent doctor it's very very possible very possible that you'd have to do foundation years first lots of people have to do even like a year of kind of acclimatizing just a year of work experience before they can even start a foundation program so it's it's very complex and like dependent on what your clinical experience has been 
um, back home. So, you know, I think, for example, having done only internships, I only finished my internship year. I didn't do SHO. But then having completed MRCS, I could skip foundation training and go straight into the core surgical training, even though I technically didn't do an F2 or foundation year two. So that would allow me to kind of like regain some time, so to speak. But if you do PLAB, on the other hand, some sort, if I had done PLAB, for example, I could not skip that foundation year. You know, okay. I'd, have, I'd really have to enter into that, that um, point. But you could also still apply to, to core training programs. The problem is that it's going to be very, very competitive. And people are probably going to look at your application like it's a weaker application, right? Because you probably have one year of experience compared to people that have two. Okay. So if you know what you want to do, if you know definitely the specialty that you want to go into, it sounds like doing the specific exam is a good thing. Definitely. I mean, the other, the other element to it is that PLAB is like USMLE in that it tests everything, you know? So yeah, if I go back, open up the hematology book and, you know, find out what it is that, you know, the tumor markers for... ALL and all of these things like that's what you have to that they're going to test whereas if you decided boy I definitely want to do OBS and gynae, all their testing is going to be OBS and gynae in the MRCOG yeah. so you know if, especially if you've been doing OBS and gynae back home in Jamaica like that's going to be a pretty simple exam compared to the PLAB and it looks really good as you're um, behind your name right so what about being able to practice I know um, I can't remember if you said that uh, in these five years, I can't remember whether or not you said you were actually practicing clinical medicine. Yeah, so I got my MRCS mm-hmm. um, towards the end of 2018. So that was in my like the, the last year that I was in the UK. So I got um, registered to practice in the UK in 2019, early 2019. And so that enabled me to do more clinical things at the hospital. So during my PhD, I was working alongside neurosurgeons. I could go to the OR, but I couldn't assist. You know, so those were the things that were kind of inhibiting me getting more involved. But once I'd gotten the registration, you know, I could do most most of anything. See patients in clinic, you know, go to the OR, scrub in, those kinds of things. So that's really what it facilitated for me. But it also opened the door to potentially applying to residency. And I mean, fortunately, that door is still open. Um, And I think it's still something that, you know, I'm considering dependent on Mm -hmm. how these elections in the U.S. go. But um, at the moment, you know, one, the UK was pretty far from home for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to get closer to home. My family um, is split between Jamaica and Florida. So, you know, being in the US kind of just made more sense. And that's why I'm kind of currently um, applying for these, these US residency positions instead of the UK. Okay. So before we segue... I want to ask maybe a question that persons might be thinking about. If they just wanted to, I guess, migrate. I don't know if the UK has the system where it's just like here, where after you finish med school, they can just become a general practitioner Mm. and set up a practice. I'm not sure if it's the same over there. It doesn't appear to be the same in the US where once you do US... Once you finish med school, you have to do USMLE and then go into a program and then practice. Right. But can you do private work say after lab or MRCS, whatnot? For the most part, yes. There are opportunities to just go straight into GP practice without doing any specialist training, like long-term specialist Mm -hmm. training. The thing is that 
the the GMC and most practices will require demonstration of some clinical experience in the UK before you can set up your own shop. You know, before you can throw your own shingle, they want to see that you've had at least maybe 12 months experience. Or, and I mean, depending on the, the region, they might want more experience so that you, because if, if it's competitive like London, like how, how are you going to say that you just came off of the flight and you want to, to start treating patients in a, you know, a major city of London? So it's, it's one of those things that's dependent on the post that you're applying to. But yes, okay. you, don't, you don't have to uh, do any specific training program like it is in the U.S. where you have to go into family medicine in order to start practicing. Okay, so let's wrap up the U.K. side. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you want to go and if you want to go to the U.K., you want to migrate, mm. you have your two options, PLAB and your various specialized examinations. So the specialized yep. examinations are... If you specifically know, I want to do OBS, I want to do um, OBS and gyne, I want to do surgery, trials and whatnot. Um, whereas PAB is generalized. Yep. What maybe what we didn't touch on was maybe the format of the exam. Sure. How was MRCS for you? Yeah. So MRCS is split into two parts. Part one is a multiple choice. I guess this is the caveat that I have to include in offering guidance on, you know, pursuing these exams. MRCS in particular is one of the most difficult exams in the world. <laughs> so it's, um, it has a pass rate of about 40%. So, you know, I, as much as I'd say, you know, it's a good exam to do to skip time, balance that with your knowledge of how difficult the exam is to actually pass. So most people that I had met who were core trainees trained in the UK had failed MRCS at least once. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, so, and, and they were taking it, taking it again and, and probably fail multiple times um, as they kind of like try to, to get through to, to an ST3 position. But the part one is the hardest. So part one is a, is a multiple choice exam. It tests lots of, you know, anatomy, some core or uh, clinical skills, you know, the, the, some of the, the questions will be formatted similar to USMLE exam um, questions. So there's a kind of a clinical vignette followed by, you know, some basic science applied STEM. So, so those were the questions that, and I mean, that exam lasted maybe about five or six hours um, with a break in, in between, of course. And then after part A, you can do part B, which is a clinical exam. So there's an OSCE. Now for that OSCE, I certainly, certainly recommend doing some program, some training or preparation in the UK because the OSCE is geared towards practicing in the UK and there are very specific things about practicing in the UK that you would not know just because you've been a surgeon in Jamaica for, for years. So for example... I did a training program or a prep program before I took part B in Wales. Um, and it was like, you know, a week long kind of boot camp where they, you know, they go through various scenarios and they, you know, they go through anatomy, of course, but anatomy was pretty easy. Our anatomy training was far, far better. But the, the really challenging things were some of like the counseling stations. So for example, I was asked to counsel a patient that missed, um, uh, that had to be pushed from from her her spot in surgery you know she has to go home she's distraught speak to her 
you know, I spoke to her, I said, listen, man, this is the situation. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, we, we'd really love to reschedule. Can we uh, do all of this? So I ticked most of the boxes, but they said, but you didn't offer her tea and biscuits. And I was like, what? You mean I lose a mark <laughs> because I didn't offer her tea? And that's, I mean, again, customary in the UK for if somebody is distraught and distressed and crying, you offer them a cup of tea. So, you know, things like that were things that I wouldn't have known had I not done this, um, this, this prep course. So that was a really, really good way to, to understand some of the, the details, the things that are the intangibles of, of practicing in the UK. So that's one thing I'd recommend for the Part B. Okay. But yeah, otherwise it's pretty standard clinical skills. You know, they want to see you tie some knots. How do you put in a chest tube? You know, kind of the same MBBS type questions. I wasn't tying any knots in MBBS. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, you know, I mean, I guess for for people who are interested in surgery, I'm sure everybody knows how to hand tie before they finish MBBS. You know, so if you're interested in surgery, yeah. that is. I don't know when you were talking about it. All I could remember is um Doctor Frey, because mm. he talks a lot about his experience in the UK, and sure. he would talk about. Like he would say the same thing, anatomy. We by the time you leave MBBS um med school, your anatomy is at the level of a resident in the UK. Yeah man, yeah man. Frey speaks the truth. Doctor Frey always speaks the truth. I rate that man forever, and he's he's not wrong. Uh, definitely, our anatomy training is years beyond most most people in the UK. Um, so I mean, I I really didn't have to try in terms of. Um, preparing for anatomy i think the things that were really really um important were understanding cultural things or like legislative things right like understanding that they have a you know if you have somebody that comes into clinic that's addicted to cigarettes or something right and then they have peripheral arterial disease you should send them to a smoking cessation clinic right they have a clinic for smoking cessation like what what is it's that the you, oxford. Know? So, you know that little handbook that we have they're like because i think the oxford comes out of right yeah 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 for sure yeah and i mean so those are the things that like we wouldn't think about right if you're just taking the exam blindly Mm -hmm. and i think that that's one of the the things again a caveat that i would put in terms of trying to pursue those exams you know when it comes to the other specialty exams or other specialist exams I, i really can't say but i do know that many residents take them so surgical residents take them definitely i think all the radiology residents take the equivalent MRC exam. Um, I know, you know, quite a few friends that have come up to do it. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, definitely there are people who are knowledgeable about these things. It's just that they're not very mainstream. Okay. You know, people just think it's lab and that's it. Okay. Do you have any, know anything about PAB? Anything you want to say on that? You know, I, the only thing that I can recall is just based on friends experiences i know that the whole thing costs a thousand pounds which is pretty hefty i think i'm not sure exactly why they take these prep courses but they do still take similar prep courses so i can't say whether or not how it was useful but my understanding is that plab is just you know pretty much all-encompassing far more generalized um and you know probably easier to get resources okay all right so that's us wrapping up uk but now oh. you've segued into the American system. 
want to yep. be closer to home. So you have completed the entire up to which exam have you done? So I've only done step one so far. And I guess this is a unique year because only step one and step two CK are necessary. Mm-hmm. So I'll be doing step two CK in about a month um, and then submitting my application. Step two CS is not going to be done this year because, again, COVID. So they've replaced the step two CS requirement with something that's called the occupational English test. Uh and my understanding is that, you know, again, similar to the step two CS, you didn't need to do it before you apply, but it just needs to be completed for you to have ECFMG certification okay. before you can match. Um, so this test is going to be a, like a speaking, writing, reading, comprehension type test in the English language with some, I guess, clinical scenarios, but it doesn't seem to test clinical knowledge or clinical skills in the same way that the step two CS does. So, I mean, you know, you could be, it, it could be a good thing, could also be a bad thing in that, you know, lots of programs here will also have that question mark of do you actually have the clinical skills? But it could be a good thing in that, well, hey, all I need to do is step one and step two CK and that's all that they look at, you know, in, in terms of viewing my application. And if that's sufficient for them, then why is that, why is that a problem? Okay. So, yeah. no, you're just doing, you've done step one, Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to do step two CK, and right. in place of CS, there's this. Repeat the name of it. Occupational English Test (OET), which again is very, very new. I've I hadn't heard about it until just recently. Um, but essentially, what ECFMG has done, and ECFMG is that body that um provides certification for international medical graduates to to participate in the match in the United States. What they've done is said, okay. You know, we can't do step two CK. This is what will allow to demonstrate use of English language. That's really what they want to everyone to demonstrate. And it's been pretty controversial, actually, because remember, IMGs or international medical graduates aren't just people like you and me who mm-hmm. were probably born and raised in, in Jamaica. And again, we can speak standard English, but also there are IMGs coming from China, you know, who where they are not native English speakers. And it could be. A, a challenge to to speak in standard English, but it also includes people who are U.S. citizens who probably have lived and um, grew up their entire lives in the United States, but went to a medical school in Grenada, and now have to do this English test. So it's a mandatory test for everyone who is an international medical graduate, regardless of your citizenship or you know your first language, your native language. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the, the controversy that's that's brewing. So you have obviously have knowledge of USMLE, and um, with my most recent chats, I also have some knowledge. But then there are persons who, again, might be listening to this because they want to see what is out there. So I'll, um, yeah. especially since you've just done it, we can spend like the next half of this hour going more mm-hmm. in depth into USMLE preparation. I hope that's, sure. I hope it's fresh in your mind. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Very, very fresh. Very, very fresh. Okay. So I right, take us from step one mm-hmm. to where you are now. Um, okay. And luckily, yes, because of my podcast with Jason Strawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
No, I'm plugging in my podcast so they can listen to that one. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, man. I, I, I listened to it, actually. I listened yeah. to the podcast. Okay. We spoke about USMLE a bit as well. And I know that's a hot topic right. for Jamaica. I don't see a lot of persons sure. wanting to go to the UK. I'm not sure mm-hmm. why. I'm not sure. No, I, honestly, that's one of the things that I really hope changes. Because the UK wants people from the Caribbean so badly. It's, it's actually incredible how much they're embracing Caribbean physicians, uh, especially post-Brexit. Like, post-Brexit, you would be surprised how many spots are now open that they need to be filled by people who speak standard English and are trained in a similar system, right? So there are lots of opportunities, but people just don't really think about it because the U.S. is right here, right? Walk us through, how did you start? So I left Oxford after completing the last bit of like data acquisition. I was running a clinical trial and, you know, I decided I could, you know, finish up the PhD back home. Um, so I left in December and I actually intended to do some work with UA, do some research on global surgery. And I, I did start doing that work in Jamaica this past March. But of course, you know, once COVID hit, everything kind of stopped. Um, and that really provided a really good time for me to start really intensively doing my USMLE prep. Um, and then, like, again, planning to, to take the exam in the US in a time that it was really challenging to get anything done. So my USMLE Step 1 prep consisted primarily of the Step 1 UWorld QBank. Pause. I want to bring it way, way, way back. So... Okay. It's to be known that you can't just decide today, go on the USMLE mm-hmm. website and be like, I'm going to take step one for international. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair. Yeah. Okay, let's take it way, way back. I think the first bit of preparation might have happened actually in internship. So that was when I first kind of like wanted to think about going away to do residency in the US. And that was partially because, you know, my intended specialty is neurosurgery and in Jamaica neurosurgery is fairly saturated right like there are three intensive care public intensive care units on the on the island and about you know 40 or 50 neurosurgeons so let's be real here how many spots are there and I've been advised as much from neurosurgeons who are in practice so you know I I always kind of thought about doing it and so I you know, first step was, let's see what the questions look like. And that's why I started doing the Q bank first. The Q banks or the question banks, I think, for most people, um, international medical graduates or American medical graduates, is probably the primary resource. At the time, I didn't know about the differences between them. So I'd done Kaplan Q bank when I was in internship. And that was just in between surgeries or when I'm waiting on something at the lab. Um, so it was really kind of lackadaisical about doing it at the time, but felt comfortable. But then all of the, and I intended to do the exam at the end of internship and try and apply, but you know, that the story changed. Yeah. You became a Rhodes Scholar. Right. Things changed drastically, which, which isn't a bad thing, but you know, my plans got upended and, and that was okay. So like when I left Oxford, I was like, all right, back on track, you know? So. The first thing I did was, again, revisited the Q-Bank, right? Like, I wanted to see if, you know, if the questions uh, had changed much and whether or not my, my skills were still sharp enough. 
uh, my knowledge was still sharp enough to 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 take the exam and I think I did I started doing the questions in addition to the evaluations which are available online those are the NBME exam um clinical assessments um and those were really instrumental to figure out where my score could potentially be at a given moment so I purchased maybe well actually I didn't purchase them they were all free as you can tell I don't like spending too much money (laughs) so so being frugal I I got five assessments for free and I decided to spread out those assessments during the time of my my um study period and this is from where uh so as in what as in what time oh this is nbme it stands for the national board of medical examiners so national board of medical examiners has self-assessment services and right now during covid19 they said listen we're giving away most of these for free so i had four or five of them um that i stored up and i decided i was going to sprinkle the assessments throughout my study period to see and kind of track my trajectory as I studied. So I was doing, you know, I did like a, a first um, test to kind of understand where my baseline was and then was serially doing questions every day. I think I'd probably average somewhere between 80 and 160 questions a day. But then that was also admixed with my primary, like, resource text, which is the first aid in USMLE. And I cannot underscore enough how important that book is. What time period did you give yourself between starting to study and doing the exam? Um, so, I mean, if I, if I had the opportunity to design it for myself and there were no you know, external factors, I would have probably given myself about two months. So, you know, eight weeks to, to properly study. What ended up happening was because the borders were closed and because I was pretty much trapped in Jamaica, I ended up taking about three months to do that prep. So I, I probably prepped between uh, April, May, and June. So I know, the, I know the general advice is about four to six months. Mind you guys, I want you to, yeah. I want you to remember that Dr. Parker, he be sounding super humble, but <laughs> I'm sorry, you sound like Stella. I don't know if you're studying. I don't know if you're just a super studier or you're just super smart or whatnot. <laughs> so I don't want anybody to listen to this and be like two months and think like, wow, I can't do that or you can't do that. You have to look at it at yourself. And look at the other things that you're doing as well and the amount of time you're able to dedicate and all that stuff. Everybody's journey is different. But I kind of... Definitely. I wanted to ask you, when you had to register for the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates, ECFMG, Mm -hmm. um, what was that process like for you? Because that's why you have to at least start the registration with them and they're the ones that certify you to say yes you can apply for residency correct sure sure yeah and so and i mean even though i'm not so so that process one i was familiar with because i had to do it in the uk as well that's how i got registered in the uk so you use ecfmg there as well um so thankfully i kind of understood that 
that process to some extent. So did you have to do but, it all over again for the US? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So so you know, new fees and again kind of liaising with University of the West Indies, um, you know, in terms of uploading your transcript um, and getting those kinds of, of assessments done. Like those were things that were, I guess, challenging mostly because of COVID, but I think mostly straightforward um, on the ECFMG portal. Um, so so th- those things weren't too bad. I think um, to your point about like self-assessment and understanding where you are and how much time you need, um, and of course, like what other things are going on, that is super, super important. So for me, um, I was fortunate not to have lots of other things going on. I could dedicate, you know, essentially 24 hours a day to studying. Um, and I know that's not the case for lots of people. So so for me, that was that was really useful. But I, I definitely say like four to six months sounds right if you feel like you've been out of, you know, the basic science for a long time. I think that sounds super acceptable. Um, but at the same time, I think it's really important to do the assessments periodically. So I would do, you know, uh, one of the NBMEs and say, okay, you know, this is an all right score, but this is not the score I want in order to match into neurosurgery, right? Like I need a better score than this. So I'll, you know, work harder, work harder, work harder, and then do another test. Maybe, you know, I, I sprinkle them in every three weeks. Okay. Um, and then three weeks later, you could see where you are with a very different set of questions, but still applicable to USMLEs. And now you can see where your growth is, where your, your weaknesses are, and when you have the opportunity, plug those weaknesses. So for me, it was like biochemistry, microbee, and maybe like immunology. You know, those were the things that were just the bane of my existence. So really, why am I going to spend time reading surgery stuff or reading anatomy? Or trying to, you know, like those were things that was that were generally fine. I just honed in on those things that were my weaknesses, and that's really what made me see significant differences um, from assessment to assessment. So I think that that's also important. So once you've hit a good score on your MBME assessment, take the exam right then. You know, like don't you don't have to waste time and think that you're gonna, you know, up it by another two or three points in the USMLE. When you get a target score, go for it. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, one, you have to start your registration. Um, I think you go yeah. on, you fill out their information, you have to liaise with your university. And then you spoke about two useful resources, first aid. And then NBME. You literally can type in nbme.org. That's the website. Yep. Free assessment and USMLE endorses them. Okay. Um, and, and also USMLE, the website also has their own assessment. So you can do that as well. Um, so, that, you know, these were the tools that I think were really useful to track progress. But the most important resource of all of them was definitely the UWorld QBank. No doubt. Those 3,000 questions um, and the explanations afterwards were the things that definitely increased my knowledge base and made me feel far more prepared to take step one. And for, for from registration to doing USMLE, step one, which is what you've done, um, mm-hmm. how much do you think someone needs to put aside in terms of getting registered, how much for the exam, playing fair, all that stuff? 
if I'm going to be honest, I think the smartest way to do it is that if you have a job, resign. Right? Like just take the time off and dedicate a good three months to prep and you know getting yourself mentally prepared to take the exam. I, I, I don't think anybody should be trying to juggle work responsibilities with such a critical exam. And, and I mean, I guess it depends also on what trajectory you want to take, because if you intend to take the exam just to pass and, you know, try and match, then that's fine. But again, for IMGs, it's very, very competitive um, for, for lots of different specialties. And for me, um, neurosurgery is one of the most competitive specialties even amongst American graduates. So, you know, I, I really wasn't going to be trying to take on too much more um, outside of just strictly getting a good step one score and then also kind of ensuring that all the other elements of my application were looking good for, for my intended specialty. In terms of cost, in terms of money you need to put aside, so if you need to travel to the U.S., um, you know, I guess that also depends on where you want to take the exam. I mean, they have lots of test centers all over. Um, I guess Florida is probably the cheapest and easiest to get to. Lots of yardies in Florida, so you could probably catch on somebody coach. But I would say, you know, budget at least 300 US to, to go up to do, to, to just to travel. Um, the step one is... Uh, I want to say like a thousand US, um, and then uh, the the resources are probably another five hundred or six hundred US. So that's taking you to around three grand already. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also like lots of other miscellaneous fees and so on. So I would say. Just up until step one, you probably have spent around three thousand US. Okay. Um, that's probably the best estimate I have. But then step two, CK is probably another nine hundred US, so that takes you to another like four grand. Plus, again, plane fare if you need to do that um, and stay somewhere. But but thankfully, you know, if you if you know somebody, crash on them coach. You know, like that's lots of Jamaicans are in Florida. Um. So that's probably the best estimate I have in terms of cost. Well, I'm excited for when you complete the other half of the exam. And Thank you. when you when you match, so that we can have a conversation about those two exams, but also about how to get a good application. I know sure. that's something that a lot of people want to know, and I'm really hoping, yeah. another plug for myself, I'm really hoping to have a conversation around that sometime soon um, for sure. everybody to hear. Sure. No, I mean, I, I would definitely at least share, like, two insights that I've acquired mm -hmm. just from friends who've also done it and, like, tried to, to, to generate good applications. The letters of recommendation are super important. Mm -hmm. Um, and getting letters of recommendation from U.S. Um, professionals, U.S. attendings or consultants is super, super important. So if you um, want to do you know, anything from family medicine to dermatology and neurosurgery, you need to do or have somebody in the U.S. that will, is willing to write a letter of recommendation for you. I think alternatively, people have done 
um, have gotten letters of recommendation from consultants in Jamaica that they've worked with, but who've been trained in the United States. And I think that's another smart way to do it, because at least you still have somebody who's from the U.S. giving you that kind of check mark, you know, that, that validation that that you could function in a U.S. clinical environment. So that's one thing that I learned is very important. And so I did observerships that would have prepared me to get these letters of recommendation. Um, and then the second thing is research. And I think that's one thing that you it doesn't really stress enough. Um, I felt like when we did our ComHealth thing and they were like, yeah, write up something based on your research experience. We were like, ah, yeah, whatever. We'll kind of like throw something together. But like really and truly, we didn't think that this was something that could be publishable. You know, that's something that we could, could submit to a peer-reviewed journal and get our names out there. And that was pretty unfortunate, I think, because that's the right time to do it in medical school. Like all the American graduates have, you know, at least one or two publications when they're coming out if not dozens. Um, and I think that's something that we're really, we're really missing when we are applying to the US or if we're thinking of applying to the US or the UK for that matter. Like forget applying to neurosurgery in the US or the UK if you have zero publications, you know? Okay, so focus on research yeah. and getting your top-notch recommendations. Definitely. Okay. Makes sense, makes sense. Yep. I don't think there is anything else left. Mm -hmm. We spoke about, we spoke a lot about UK. I should probably mm -hmm. speak with somebody who has done PLAB. I think that might sure. be helpful. Yeah, no, I have lots of friends who've done it. Um, I'd love to, I'd, I'd definitely put yes, you in touch. Yes, link me up. Um, just, sure. uh, and I, I never said it in the beginning, but what I'm really doing, this is for everybody who's listening. It will be in my description of this podcast the whole aim is for to talk to persons who have done things outside of doing internship SHO and then going into residency at mm -hmm. UE just to show that there are other options so I'm not just talking to persons sure. who are who have done USMLE but also persons who are in non-clinical mm -hmm. jobs or they're in other they're do they're doing other aspects maybe they're just practicing medicine but they also have something else on the side maybe they're a business person sure. just to kind of show medical people med students and doctors likewise that there there are mm. options out there and there are things that we can do so definitely definitely i mean i, I think um one that's a incredible initiative like i think for lots of practitioners especially in the current climate um they should think about alternative paths. Um, I mean, fortunately for me, um, the research path was a really cool one. Academia was a really good one um, that I was interested in. Like I really wanted to do some research at some point. And so the master's and the PhD was really good for that. Um, and again, like, you know, we just didn't have much research exposure. I don't know if it's still the same, but our research exposure was very limited um, when we were when we were in med school so so that was really cool and again that's a whole other career path for people in medicine the other thing that i really really enjoyed and that i still enjoy is medical education and i don't know if a lot of people think about medical education as a career path but like you can teach medicine and be okay and live fine the job that's paid me the most and that will probably pay me the most per hour in my entire life was in medical education 
um, took me on trips to to India, all over the world. Um, so that was, you know, I, I went to the Middle East because I was teaching. Um, and so I think like that was one of the things that people, it's not really on people's radars, but like, check it out, you know, medical education. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I really hope that mm-hmm. persons listen to this. Uh, I know we couldn't, there's no way we would have answered everything in one hour, but I hope that it really ignites your mind to kind of look at different things and look at different options and see what's out there and see what you might like to do and see what is good for you. Yeah, that's really the hope of this, the hope of this podcast, really. So, Dr. Parker, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Samantha. Like many persons, I don't think this is the last one, the last the last time I'll have you on here. One always not enough, but that's okay. <laughs> right? And thank you so much for sharing. I, I think that's a really awesome sure. thing. So many persons have been willing to share their personal journey. And I don't think we understand the impact of that. You might just have said something that someone didn't even realize Um, was an option for them. I really enjoy these conversations. I wish you all the best in life. And great things to come from you. Or even more great things to come from you. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully. I don't want to disappoint. But thank you so much. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. And it's been great talking to you. Are you open to persons reaching out to you, messaging you? Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm on all the medias. Um, I'm on most of the social medias. My Instagram is probably my the most actively used. Um, that's at TQ Parko. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, at Dr. Tarek Parko. Yeah, and you know, Facebook, infrequently used. So I would definitely say IG or or Twitter are probably the, the two places that you okay, can probably so get to. Okay, so slide in his DM. Slide in. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. And for everybody listening to this podcast, on whatever platform you're listening to, please subscribe. I always say like and share, but I don't think you like it. So subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And of course, you can reach out to me on Twitter at the Layman's DR, also on Instagram at the Layman's DR. And you can email me at thelaymansdoctor at gmail.com. Looking forward to, I don't know, sharing more info with you guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again so much, Dr. Parico. Thank you again. It's awesome.